Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. It's not often that we get to talk about freedom of speech in the movies. Sometimes, of course, we'll talk about how censors try to pull the plug on our TVs. Like in 2015, when there were widespread efforts across the country to prevent the movie American Sniper from being shown on campuses. But rarely is freedom of speech the topic of a movie. That's why I was excited to see the new movie Denial with a co-worker at the Angelica Film Center in New York City recently. The movie, which is now in theaters, is about Emory University professor Deborah Lipstadt's courtroom battle with British historian David Irving. In 1996, David Irving filed a lawsuit in English court against Professor Lipstadt and her publisher Penguin Books for critical comments Lipstadt wrote about him in her 1993 book, Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory. Lipstadt wrote in her book that Irving was a Holocaust denier and that he was a right-wing extremist. In denial, Deborah Lipstadt is played by English actress Rachel Weisz with Timothy Spall playing David Irving. Written by David Hare and directed by Mick Jackson, this legal thriller is based on the events leading up to Irving's libel suit and the famous 32-day courtroom battle that ensued. For those of us who care about global issues relating to freedom of speech and academic freedom, this is a must-see movie. Irving's suit against Professor Lipstadt wouldn't have gone anywhere in the United States. But because of what I consider to be backward libel laws in England, it's much more difficult for a defendant like Professor Lipstadt to win. As we discussed two weeks ago, or two episodes ago, I should say, with Brendan O'Neill, in England, the burden of proof in libel cases is flipped and placed on the defendant to prove the truth of their statements, which results in somewhere around an 80% success rate for plaintiffs like David Irving. So, for four years between 1996 and 2000, it was up to Professor Lipstadt's legal team, led by solicitor Anthony Julius, who represented Princess Diana in her divorce, and barrister Richard Rampton to prove that Professor Lipstadt's statements were substantially true. That the Holocaust occurred, that Irving was a Holocaust denier and Hitler apologist, and that he had deliberately manipulated facts to support his own ideological views. At its core, this movie is about how one American professor exercised her right to criticize the scholarship of another academic and how that other academic tried to use the British legal system to silence her. Our guest today is THE Deborah Lipstadt, who is still at Emory University and is currently a professor of modern Jewish history and Holocaust studies. Her 2006 memoir about the David Irving libel trial, entitled Denial, Holocaust History on Trial, is what inspired the film's producers Gary Foster and Russ Krasnoff to want to make Denial the movie. During our conversation, Professor Lipstadt revisits the Irving trial, explains its implications for free speech and academic freedom, and elaborates on the very unique phenomenon of seeing one's life acted out on the big screen. I want to give a quick show note before we begin here. Professor Lipstadt spoke with us over the phone, so you will hear some periodic crackles in our connection. And while this shouldn't disrupt your listening too much, we've made the full transcript from our interview available at thefire.org. And with all of that out of the way, here's our conversation. 
Well, Professor Lipstadt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's actually a pleasure to have you in particular today because without my even knowing it, most of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education's staff went to go see the movie Denial last night. Uh, so good taste. <laughs> I, I actually work out of New York City, and I'm in our offices in Philadelphia today. And I walk in, and I hear from a number of people on staff that they saw the movie last night. And I said, did you know I'm actually interviewing uh, Professor Lipstadt for the So to Speak podcast today? And they were taken aback. I said, we have the Deborah Lipstadt here the with real us. One. Not, not Rachel Weiss as Deborah Lipstadt, but the real Deborah Lipstadt. The real life Deborah Lipstadt. So we're... Dare I ask if they liked it? They loved it. I mean, this is this is an office full of free speech advocates, free speech lawyers. And this was right. I mean, I'm sure legal thrillers are their taste to begin with. But throw uh-huh. in the free speech angle and the academic freedom angle, which I hope we talk about later. And you've mm-hmm. got making for a fire classic. Perfect. I'm delighted. I'm just delighted. So by way of starting, can you briefly relay to us who David Irving is and what happened between you and him in the 90s? Sure. David Irving is a man who has written many books on different aspects of World War II. He's a Brit. Um, and many of the books had what I would describe as a sort of right-wing perspective. And by that, I don't mean conservative. But um, they always, many of them seem to always want to point out where the Allies had done wrong and the Nazis had done right, where the Allies had been guilty of war crimes and the Nazis were the victims. Um, and it always had that kind of tone. Many of them had that kind of tone to it. Yeah. Um, and then later on, and I would say in the late 70s, in the big splash with a book called Hitler's War, he argued that Hitler didn't know about the Holocaust, and when he found out about it, he tried to stop it, that he was indeed the best friend the Jews had in Germany. So it was just some of the stuff was, was way over the top. And Jesse, people's reaction to it was, well, that's ridiculous that Hitler didn't know about the Holocaust. We'll ignore that, and, but we'll, we'll pay attention to the rest of what he says, because he seems to find new documents. He seems to know a lot. Yeah. Now, in the 80s, he began to make closer and closer contact with Holocaust deniers, uh, in part because many academics were becoming more wary of his work. And in the late 80s, he actually, I use the term loosely, came out as a Holocaust denier, full-fledged in the trial in Canada. He said, I don't believe there were gas chambers. I'm now convinced that the whole thing is a myth, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That was just when I was writing my book on Holocaust denial. And what was the name of that book? Denying the Holocaust, the Growing Assault on Truth and Memory. And in it, I included a couple of paragraphs, not extensive, that David Irving was a Holocaust denier. And that he knew that unlike many deniers who simply repeat what they've been told, he knew the facts and he twisted the facts to fit his pre-existing political outlook. Um, And then I also said that he was the most dangerous of Holocaust deniers. And the reason I called him the most dangerous of Holocaust deniers, because most other deniers were were known only for being deniers or for being deniers and right-wing racists like David Duke, you know, in this country. 
Mm-hmm. But Irving had a separate reputation as someone who knew World War II history. So what he had to see was taken somewhat seriously. Um, and then I published the book, and I didn't think I was doing anything, gee, anything that might cause a confrontation, because I knew that others had written far worse about him before, far more extensively and far more um, almost, I don't know, uh, harsher than I, what I said was harsh, but others had written even, I think, more harshly. So the book came out in the United States in 93, and then was bought, but the rights were bought by Penguin UK, a British, the British publisher, and it came out in the United Kingdom in 94, 95, something like that, 95, I think it was. Um, and within a short time after it's coming out, um, he told Penguin that he was considering suing me for libel for calling him a Holocaust denier. Now, when I first heard this, I thought it was just ludicrous, because here was a man who had testified in a Canadian court that, you know, he didn't believe there were gas chambers, he thought this was all a myth, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought, you know, this is ridiculous, this is just a nuisance letter to scare me. But uh, contrary to what I expected, it wasn't, and he pushed forward with the suit, and eventually I ended up in a, uh, a trial in England. In the movie, there's a very tense moment. Presumably, you're in the United States, you're giving a lecture about your book, and the David Mm -hmm. Irving character stands up to confront Mm -hmm. you about your accusation that he is a Holocaust denier, which you, as you just said, said he himself has admitted in the past. Um, Did that actually happen in real life? Absolutely happened. This, what's interesting, there are many things that I think are interesting about this movie, and I don't think that just because I'm the main character, Mm -hmm. but I think there are many interesting aspects. But one of the interesting aspects, both from possibly a free speech perspective or a a truthfulness perspective, maybe is a better way of putting it, and a movie-making perspective, is that David Hare, the great screenwriter um, and playwright, who wrote the script, who wrote the screenplay. It's, a, it's an excellent, uh, excellent screenplay, and I was actually yeah, talking I, with one of my colleagues, and he said David Hare is probably the greatest living playwright around, so yes, it's great exactly. that he gets to tell your story. Yes, I was thrilled when I, they chose him and he agreed. Um, he, everything that is said in the courtroom comes from transcripts, and everything, we have little clips, videos in which David Irving, or the actor Timothy Spall, the wonderful actor Timothy Spall, who, who depicts Irving, who plays Irving, says certain things. Those are all exactly what Irving said. And Irving did show up when I was giving a public lecture in Georgia, interrupt the lecture, begin to wave around dollar, you know, uh, cash, American cash, and say, I have $1,000 here, and I'll give it to anyone who can prove there were really gas chambers, who can prove that um, Hitler ordered the Holocaust, et cetera, et cetera. He disrupted the lecture. It was mm-hmm. a real showman kind of thing, um, you know, and it was, it was a stunt. It was yeah. a real stunt. And did he actually but film that, it? Uh, yes, yes, they did film it. They mm-hmm. did film it. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, you say that, and they say at the movie that this is based on a true story, and I, I had done mm-hmm. some research, and it sounds like David Hare did read all the transcripts from the, the court Every trial. Every single line of, of 32 sessions of transcripts yeah. went over eight, ten weeks, you know, depending how you count the weeks. But, uh, yes, he read every single one. And um, David Hare's one gripe with the movie is that it says, 
based on a true story and not a true story. But you know? <laughs> for legal reasons, they have to say either inspired by a true story or based on a true story. You'll have to ask your uh, friends uh, what the exact you know, a situation is that, but because, you know, there's certain scenes where maybe I'm jogging when I get a phone call and I actually got that phone call sitting in my office, you say based on it as opposed to a story. <laughs> the lawyer's got a hold of it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did some research before uh, we hopped on this phone call and it looks like the trial lasted 32 32- Days and six, days, right. six hours a day. So that's... Uh, um, right. We started at 10. We ended at 5, I guess it was, with an hour off for lunch, something like that. And um, the uh, it was very intense, but even more intense with the, with the you know, years of research that went into preparing for the trial. Mm-hmm. What we did essentially was follow the footnotes. We... we see... Uh, let me figure out how to say this best because I've been so immersed in it. I guess the best way to say it is um, we weren't really proving that the Holocaust happened. What proving was what David Irving says happened isn't correct. So in other words, we weren't proving what happened or how many people were murdered at Auschwitz. But when he says, I don't know, 64, only he says 64,000 died, not murdered, at Auschwitz, that he doesn't have the documentation to prove it. So in order to do that, we followed his footnotes back to the sources. And we showed that in every case, when he cited a certain document and said, this document proves X, Y, Z, when you looked at the document itself, what it really proved was A, B, C, you know, and that there was always some change of a date or some change of a person or change of a sequence or addition of a phrase or mis- mistranslation of something that changed the meaning of what was said so that the proof he offered was, didn't prove what he was saying happened. Yeah, you're, you're speaking a little bit here to the differences between the protections, A, for free speech in England, but also for due process. What is, can you describe for our listeners the particular legal quirk in mm-hmm. England that made this trial possible? Because it wouldn't have been possible in the United States. I mean, right. you could file yeah. a libel claim here in the United States, but it would have been dismissed almost right. immediately. Been dismissed on two grounds. Mm-hmm. One, that he was a public figure. Well, one, the freedom of speech, that pesky thing called the First Amendment, mm-hmm. which may be hanging on by its fingernails, but it's still hanging on. And B, as you well know even better than I, coming from the legal perspective, um, the public figure defense. Mm-hmm. That, uh, what is it, New York Times v. Sullivan? Um, that uh, a public figure can't sue for libel unless they can prove malicious intent. Mm-hmm. That the author knew the words they she was ri- she was writing were either untrue or should have known that they were untrue. So it would have been impossible. You know, which is why exactly until it came out in England. Um, the other uh, difference, and so that's what made the, that's why this case could never have happened in the United States, but could happen in England. And the reason, of course, it, it, it could proceed in England is that once Penguin UK bought the book and sold copies of the book, in England, I was considered to have done business in England, and therefore I was under the, the, under the uh, uh, responsible to, under the authority of um, but the other a fundamental difference is that in the United States, if I say you libeled me, um, I, as the aggrieved part of the plaintiff, 
um, have to prove that you indeed did love me. In England, the case law reads, as I believe I'm maybe paraphrasing here, words written are considered untrue until proven true. Mm-hmm. So words, um, I, the burden of proof was on me as the defendant, as the author, to prove the truth of what I said, unlike in the United States where it would have been on him to prove the falsehood. And the reason this is so important is that it immediately limited my uh, freedom of movement, so to speak, or options uh, in how to respond, because if I hadn't responded, he would have won by default. Mm -hmm. Had he won by default, it would have meant that, um, you know, he could claim, he could say legally, you know, and and truthfully, the court found that Deborah Lipstadt indeed libeled me when she called me a Holocaust denier. Ipso facto, I am not a Holocaust denier, and my David Irving uh, version of the Holocaust is a genuine version. Yeah. So um, that I, that made it impossible for me to to to, to ignore it, and on top of which she possibly could have uh, gotten damages against me, attached my property. But that I worry about far less. Mm-hmm. I worried about that far less. I worried about the bigger implications to to history. Yeah, and you know, speaking of the bigger implications, so this movie is most notably, or at least on the surface, about Holocaust denialism and your fight with David Irving, mm-hmm. um, but as I hope it's clear to our listeners who see the movie or have seen the movie, it's also about much, much more than the Holocaust. And we've touched on a couple of those themes already. It's also about the law. It's about how different societies mediate truth. And it's about some of the biggest challenges that the liberal values of free speech, free inquiry, and I think most importantly in this case, academic freedom have faced in the past 20 years. Were these some of the themes that you had hoped the film would capture when it came out? Yes, but I also, you know, sometimes when you try to grab too much, you grab nothing at all. <laughs> you know, you pick up that laundry and you go back for that last sock and everything else falls down, or you pick mm. up a ball of papers and you go for that last paper and they all fall. Um, I wanted this paper, uh, this paper, I wanted this movie to tell the story of what happened. And in the course of so doing, I, I was hoping there would be certain takeaways that, from the movie. And, and I'm not saying messages, because I don't believe movies should have messages. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a movie with a message is either a documentary or a bad feature film, you know, if it's hitting you over the head with a message. Mm-hmm. But I do believe there's certain takeaways. And I think the primary takeaway, and I would, I would guess uh, pretty uh, securely that David Hare, who wrote the script, and Mick Jackson, who directed, agree with me 100%, that there's certain things, there's certain facts that aren't debatable. You know, sometimes in liberal, small-l society, we grow up thinking, oh, everything, is, everything should be open to debate, and everything should be open to question, and everything, there are always two sides to every story, and the enlightened view is to, to keep your mind open to two sides to every story. Well, there aren't two sides to every story. Um, the Holocaust happened. Mm-hmm. Slavery happened. Um, Elvis is dead. You know? <laughs> and this is, um, this is something you say during, or at least Rachel Weisz. Exactly, and Rachel repeats it. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that there are not two sides to every story. Even, even taking it further, uh, the ice, you know, the, 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 they're melting. Um, now, you might debate why they're melting. I think there's a general consensus, but we won't, let's not get into that now. Um, 
or uh, you know, some people want to take uh, some. Some people may say slavery happened, but it really was indentured servitude. It wasn't mm-hmm. so bad. Everybody worked hard. Slaves got three square meals a day, uh, maybe two square meals. They li- they had all their needs taken care of. So it really wasn't so bad. Well, excuse me, they were slaves, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so I think there's certain things that can't be debated. Maybe you could say how slavery could have been ended. Could it have been ended without a, a war with such tragic consequences, or was the war absolutely necessary? You might debate, um, could the Holocaust have been pre- pre- prevented if certain actions had been taken in the 30s? Um, was it possible only in Germany? All those kind of questions. And questions, you know, the same thing with the Armenian genocide, with the terrible wars in the former Yugoslavia and the genocides, the Muslim men and boys there. Um, but not that they happened. They happened, and they're fact. And there's, there's a difference between fact, opinion, and lies. They're three different categories. And what you have with Holocaust deniers are outright lies, and that's what we were showing the court, Mm -hmm. which people such as David Irving, deniers such as David Irving, try to mask as opinions based on documents, and then to encroach the facts and to change the facts. So in other words, they take a lie, they mask it as opinion, and then they use it to try to reshape the truth. Do you think there's some, you know, a, a hidden or lower level value, at least, in liberal Western, uh, mostly Western societies that have very open uh, you know, allowances for freedom of speech in allowing those sorts of, as you say, outright lies oh, yeah, to be speaking? Of course. I, I gave a talk uh, in January during the film, during the making of the movie. I was, went from the set to the Oxford Union, you know, at the University of mm-hmm. Oxford. Um, Oxford University, I always forget which. Um, and, um, and I spoke at the Oxford Union, which is probably one of the world's oldest debating societies. Um, and I spoke against laws outlawing Holocaust denial. I'm not for laws outlawing Holocaust denial. I, first of all, we have the first, in this country it would be impossible, because we again have that, as I like to describe it, pesky thing called the First (laughs) Amendment. But second of all, I don't want to cede to the politicians power over deciding what's allowed and what's not allowed. I I tremble at that, Mm -hmm. that politicians should decide this this is okay and this is not okay. Mm -hmm. I was recently in Germany, and I was having a discussion with a young man, very bright, very open-minded, intelligent guy, and we were talking about some of the um, issues facing Europe today with massive immigration, Muslim immigrants, immigrants, uh, some of the tensions that are arising, etc. And it was very, it was very calm and cool and you know wasn't a debate or anything it was just sort of uh, talking about all the different aspects of the issue mm-hmm. and we are we were in germany which has taken in many 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 uh refugees um and he said and this is a young guy um he said he thinks the government should that there should be rules don't allow for the defamation of religion we had been talking about the religious cartoons the muhammad cartoons etc yeah and he said there should be laws which don't allow for the defamation of religion. 
So I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, that you can't draw Muhammad and things like that. I said, so how do you differentiate between a medieval portrait uh, mosaic of Muhammad or a drawing of Muhammad that was done in the Middle Ages by Muslim for a Muslim audience and what's done today? And how do you decide what's allowed and what's not allowed? And how do you decide what's gone too far and what's not gone too far? I said, you want to leave that up to the politicians? Um, and he just didn't. He said, no, no, there must be a law because that's the only way you'll deal with uh, religious tensions. Well, I think part of the cost of living in a free society is that you have this messiness, messiness of free, freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And the way to counter freedom of speech is with facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we Yeah, and you say, I don't know if this is in the movie or in the press conference that you did or both because it's, it's very, very cl- closely tracks what happened. But you say freedom of speech gives you the freedom to say whatever you want. But what it doesn't do is give you the freedom to say whatever you want and not be held accountable for it. That is Precisely. by society. We always say here at FIRE, the best way to fight bad, wrong-headed ideas is with more speech. And that's what you did. Didn't, as an, Justice, didn't Justice Brandeis say that, that the antidote, I think yes. it was Brandeis, the antidote to uh, bad speech is more speech, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you tried to do with David Irving. You, um, you know, you saw the argument he was making as a scholar and academic and, you know, someone who just cares about these issues deeply, you countered that. And he tried That's to use right. the English legal system to silence you. Right. Well, you know, one of the problems was David Irving for years had gotten away with making these statements because he mainly was speaking to his, you know, followers, his acolytes, his, his, the, those who believed they're ready in the cause, etc. And when he chose, he made a mistake when he chose to sue me. Because when we fought back and we went into a court, suddenly there was a voice of authority, the judge, to look at something and say, Mr. Irving, you say the document says that, but it doesn't say that. And he'd look at the document and say, yes, your, yes, your lordship, and then he'd repeat the same argument. And the, and the judge would say, Mr. Irving, the document doesn't say that. And then he'd look, he'd say, yes, your lordship. And then the third time, I remember this one, session, the judge just said, Mr. Irving, move on. The document does not say what you're saying it says. And he sort of looked at the judge a little bit bewildered because he had never been in a situation where anybody had what we might call fact-checked him, mm-hmm. you know, and, and suddenly it was a whole new world uh, in which, to which he was not, uh, you know, used to. Yeah, I think that it's John Stuart Mill um, in his book on liberty who said, you know, or maybe it was John Milton, another great English thinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who has known truth to be put worse to the wear when in a, in a free and open encounter with r- the wrong or or something mm-hmm. along those lines? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said you said uh, in response to an earlier question that you opposed Holocaust denial laws. Um, you know, Holocaust denial, as many of us in the free speech world know, is often put up as among the worst of ideas that anyone could mm-hmm. hold. Um, the idea I don't even we call it an idea. You know? uh, yeah, but it's you know for us the benchmark example of wrong-headed right, exactly. speech. Hey, look, the, the denial of the Armenian genocide is also an outrage. Yeah, and you know it's it's an, and many of the things that the Nazis did are held up as benchmarks for yes, yes, wrong, <laughs> wrongness or evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a result of this, many countries have these Holocaust denial laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States does not, and the Holocaust denial laws in Austria actually landed David Irving in jail in mm-hmm, 2005 mm-hmm. for a three-year prison sentence. He only served mm-hmm. one year, I believe. And That's at the right. time, you said that you believed it was wrong that he was thrown in jail because you believed That's it right. turned him into a martyr. Mm-hmm. Well, I believed it was wrong that he was thrown in jail, A, because I believe in free speech. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what he claimed and what's, what what a couple of historians claimed and they're sort of depicted in the trial um, afterwards was, oh, uh, this is uh, this is an attack on free freedom of speech. And that would make me crazy because that's exactly what it wasn't. Yes, it was an attack on freedom of speech. He was attacking my freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were painting him as a victim because uh, he looked more like them than I did. You know, he mm-hmm. was more like them. And this, the the uh, British academics, less so now, but for many years, was a very closed club. Men, non Christian, you know, uh, upper crust club. Yeah. But in any case, um, yeah, you know, it's it, I was against it when he was put in jail, though some some of his followers immediately wrote to me after I published an article about that, saying, well, aren't you going to fight for his freedom? And I said, you know, there are a lot of things I really care about, which is true. Mm-hmm. I care about the ecology. I care about the, uh, you know, other societies, et cetera. I care about many, many, many causes, a number of causes, which are very dear to me. I said, I'm going to work on those. When I'm done with those, I'll worry about David Irving's freedoms. So, you know, <laughs> I did not do anything, but I did speak out publicly. I did speak out publicly. Yeah, and we should note, because I don't think we've actually even mentioned this yet, but those of you who have seen the movie will know, you won the trial. You won the libel trial. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah, spoiler alert. Has has David Irving said anything about the film, to your knowledge? Uh, No, I don't think he's seen it. It hasn't opened in the UK. It opens in the UK at the end of January. I am sure we will hear from him. (laughs) And I can assure you that I won't pay any attention to what he has to say. You know, he took six, seven years of my life with the preparation for the trial, with the trial itself, with the appeals. And when the day the appeal was over and the day I decided not to go after him for the funds, which I could have legitimately asked for to replenish my defense fund, I said, you know what? He has stolen enough of my time and energy and concerns. I don't care what he says from here on in. And I've never looked at his site. I've never gone, you know, paid attention to what he has to say. So I can assure you when he writes his review, that's one of the reviews I won't be reading. <laughs> what what surprised you uh, most when making this movie? Is this the first movie you've ever been involved in? Oh, yeah. It's the first and probably the last. <laughs> <laughs> how'd you hear, I, before you answer that question, how'd you hear about that they were making a movie about this? Well, they optioned my book, so they came to me and asked to option my, my memoir on the trial. Uh-huh. So I knew it was in the works. But you know how many books get optioned and movies never get made? Oh, uh, I think there, there are hundreds of books that get optioned because you option a book for, you know, not much money, if it's, especially if it's a professor. You know, it's not some famous, famous person. And, and most of them never get made. So, you know, I... I I knew it was options, and sometimes at dinner parties or when I had friends over, we would sit around laughing, saying, okay, who should play whom? And we'd cast the movie, never thinking that anything would come of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I watched this, you know, slowly but slowly and slowly again. Eventually something did come of it. And once they decided to move forward, it was about last summer, I would guess, uh, they were pretty quick. We we started. We uh, they made the final decisions in I guess the spring of 2015, um, and and the casting was set by the end of summer 2015. Uh, in the fall, uh, the producers and I went to Auschwitz to get permission to film there and to figure out what we were allowed to do and not allowed to do because Auschwitz has very strict rules about that. Mm-hmm. And the filming started in December and was over by February. So. Once they got moving, they moved like, uh, you know, like uh, nobody's business. Yeah, what surprised you most about the process? The quickness of it? No, 
it was, you know, A, how complicated it is and how much everything has to go into every scene. You know, I would stand there and I would watch, and when, the, uh, when Mick Jackson, the director, would say, cut, everybody had a job. Everybody ran. People knew, and this one had to check the, the hair. Was the hair the same, and was the scarf the same as it was in the previous take? And had some books been moved, which had to be put back because there was going to be another uh, take, uh, you know, of that scene. Um, and I just stood there and watched, and I was just, it was like this very choreographed dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was interesting. And I was also deeply, deeply touched by the concern and the care of everyone involved, especially Rachel Weiss, of course, because she was playing me. She so, so strongly wanted to get this right. She would call me and she'd say, tell me how you were feeling before she'd go to rehearse a certain scene. What was it like for you? Tell me how you felt. Uh, like that scene you described where he inter- in- interrupts the lecture at the, very, it's at the very beginning of the film. I said, I felt like a deer in headlights. I felt completely inept because I didn't want to debate him, but I knew the students sitting there were looking for answers to his claims. Mm-hmm. And I felt completely defeated. And if you look at her face, and her body language, she gets it exactly right. So um, I was so pleasantly, pleasantly surprised by the degree, not just that she wanted to get it right, but the degree to which she was willing to bring me into the process um, until at some point in the process she, she knew she had it. She knew mm-hmm. she had me. And she'd look up, and there I'd be standing there, and she'd say, who's that woman over there? I'm Deborah Lipstadt. But it was very gratifying to see. She's a professional's professional. There's, there's a reason why she's considered one of the great actors of our time. Yeah, right? a Hollywood A-lister. Yeah, with good reason, not just because she, you know, gets good stories or, you know, does things or what has reality shows about her. But she's she's an A, she's an A, A plus lister, I guess I would put her. Yeah. Last question for you. What's the response been like from your friends, family and colleagues who are around? When oh, people, this all well, yeah, a lot of people who were at the trial, you know, they say, well, how come the day I was there, this came up, it wasn't, you know, the, the film they would have made would have been three hours long, the film I would have made would have been four hours long. <laughs> um, you know, there are parts that aren't, aren't in it. One of the very gratifying parts, which I understand couldn't be in it, but it's this part of the story that I think is so important, especially as we talk about universities and liberal arts and liberal education and freedom of speech, um, and that was the support I received from Emory University. Yeah. Emory University came forward right at the beginning. Uh, when we thought this wouldn't be a, uh, an international case about which movies would be made, we thought it was, you know, a sort of uh, mosquito bite that would have to be, you know, or a mosquito nest that would have to be eradicated, uh, stamped out, and then, then we'd all move forward. The story would be over. Um, but, uh, you know, the mosquitoes kept biting. So, uh, but at the very beginning, Emory set up a uh, travel fund for me. They said, we don't know your financial situation. We're not interested in it. We just want you to know. You, you know you'll have to go back and forth. You're being sued for what your research. Your, we ask of our faculty to be great researchers, great teachers, and to be morally engaged. And we can think of nothing better that exemplifies that. So they did that to make my life easier. Then they reduced my teaching load so I could go back and forth to London more easily. Um, and then when the trial came and I said I would take a sabbatical, you know, so I could be in London for four months, the, the provost said to me, that's ridiculous. 
don't do that. I said, well, I'll take a leave of absence, which is a leave without pay. And she said, no, no, don't do that. And I said, but, but I have to, I said to her, but I have to be in London. She said, no, no, you'll be in London. It'll be as if you're teaching, but the courtroom will be your classroom, and we will all learn from you from afar. And then they didn't talk about it. They didn't brag about it. They didn't talk about it. I'm the one talking about it. Well, so I'm very, I'm very grateful and very proud, proud of you. So I'll, I'll brag a little bit on them. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, Emory had a free speech controversy on campus earlier this year in response to the, the Trump chalkings, of course. And the, right. the, the president, you know, you know, eventually issued a very strong statement in defense of free speech. He set up a committee, as only universities do, <laughs> that, um, you know, put forth a good set of principles on free speech and academic freedom at the university. There's big right. free speech defenders there, such as Sasha Volok, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And, I do. I am. I am. And yourself. Well, you know, there's only, yeah, the, it, it, I can understand why there were certain students who were particularly disturbed by the talking, you know, Trump for president and Trump get over it or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out the people who did the talking, you know, you start to have permission to, to do the talking on the sidewalk so we don't get, you know, racist or sexist or homophobic or anti-Semitic, uh, you know, statements being, being chalked. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't have the permission. But the idea that, you know, you could silence, you just can't. Mm-hmm. There's a much better way of doing it. Yeah. So, and it started a dialogue on campus. Yeah, know. it did start a dialogue on campus, but uh, hopefully all those students who protested are registered to vote. <laughs> hopefully. So the movie's in theaters now. Uh, it's playing throughout the remainder of October and uh, into November. It'll, as you said, come out in the U.K. later this year, correct? Yes, yes, and I, I hope people do go, do go see it and uh, learn from it and learn that, A, there's not, there are not two sides to every opinion, and B, while you can't fight every fight, there's certain fights you can't turn away from. <laughs> Professor Deborah Lipstadt, thank you so much for coming You're on welcome. the show. Thank you, Nico. It's been a pleasure. That was Emory University Professor Deborah Lipstadt. You can find out if Denial is playing at a theater near you by visiting denialthemovie.com. If you're interested in checking out Professor Lipstadt's books, the one that sparked David Irving's libel suit is called Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory. And her memoir about the trial is called Denial, Holocaust History on Trial. Both books are available at Amazon, but don't forget to use Amazon Smile to make your purchase by visiting smile.amazon.com. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback about the show at so2speak at thefire.org, or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. But until next time, thanks for listening.